As I was preparing earlier this morning, um, I was reminded of Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, which read, Seek the Lord, Yahweh, while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I had these on my mind because I was going to share with you some lengthy detail about a person who, from all appearances, seems to have heard the gospel many times and rejected it every time and went to the grave not acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ, though he knew very well all there was to know about him in terms of the information. This is perhaps uh, most tragic, not only because he debated Christians after Christians after Christians on whether there is a God or there isn't a God on various aspects of faith or the Christian faith or religion. He has a brother who is a very well-known Christian in England um, who is an author, not quite as well-known, but an author, journalist, and commentator, uh, like you would expect on PBS or BBC, something like that. He was on BBC quite a bit. But I've cut all of that for time. And to be honest with you, I I struggled with whether I should share that with you or not, whether it was worth the time, whether it was um, appropriate, and uh, so maybe uh, that was providential. But the thing that I thought about this morning as I was preparing was this, seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And here was one who had a lifetime full of exposure to the gospel, but was um, almost always hostile to it, although in the last number of years, I have to say that he softened not necessarily to the gospel, but those who believed it. And I just want to make sure that uh, if there's anyone here who is not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are hearing the gospel here today. If, if even for the first time, seek Yahweh while he may be found. Do not turn away from his voice. And so we're talking about prayer these days, and I just have a few examples of how we might pray rightly, perhaps even urgently, both for ourselves and for others. There is in our praying an intercession on behalf of others that is sacrificial. We are taking time, energy, effort, and attention away from ourselves to present someone to to the Lord and their needs. We are also praying for ourselves, so we are um, doing so in faith that he hears us and that he responds to us, not always in the way that we would prefer, 
but he is not um, dismissive or he is not uncaring, um, but he is wise and good and righteous and merciful and compassionate and holy and loving. First and foremost, we can pray that God in Christ Jesus saves us, or saves our loved ones, all in our spheres of influence, even all living people in our time and from such a fate as dying in unbelief. The Bible teaches us that saving and sustaining faith is a work of God, so really we pray that God does his work in us and through us and the same for those around us because we love them. Not because we want them to be like us, but because we want them to be like Jesus. And we want to offer them the opportunity to know him and to be with him for all eternity. Secondly, the Bible also makes clear that submission to the one true and living God, his word and his will, does not lead to enslavement as some protest. Rather, submission to God leads to the joy and freedom of being who and what God created us to be. And taking the Bible seriously means that we pray for the faith to obey God, his word, and his will. Thirdly, as we've conclusively seen, the Bible also teaches us that our purpose for being, indeed the, the purpose for every human being who ever lived, is to bear God's image and manifest his character and represent him on the earth in our time and place. Who can think of a better purpose than that? If meaning is what we're looking for, we have been created with the divine purpose of bearing God's image and manifesting his character on the earth and in that context representing him in our time and place. Taking the Bible seriously means then we can pray for God's word and spirit to restore his good purpose in us and in each other and in our loved ones and in those persons who are in our spheres of relationship. And finally, the Bible also makes clear that the only source of eternal hope, hope for this life and for the next, which is sure to come, comes only by God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If we want to be biblical Christians, and we want to believe the biblical Christian gospel, and we want to also present and promote and, and invite people into the biblical Christian gospel, that's it. The only source of eternal hope comes only by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And despite assertions of those who don't believe, this life is not all there is. In fact, according to scripture, we in this life are only just getting started. Taking the Bible seriously means preparing for eternity. Well, that is an abbreviated background for our text and the rest of our sermon for this morning. And for the next three Sundays, we'll look at what is often called the Lord's Prayer from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 6 for us, which is part of, uh, as I just noted, that larger treatise, sometimes called the best sermon ever, which I actually believe, the Sermon on the Mount. But as you may have discerned from my title, and as I mentioned earlier, I strongly believe this text and the prayer instruction 
Jesus gives in it ought to be called the disciples' prayer, if we call it anything. He's not teaching a few verses for us to to memorize and recite. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But he's giving us a template for how to pray to the Father in a way that honors him and also intercedes for others. It's both selfless and sacrificial. It's bowing the knee to the sovereign and also taking up our place to meet the needs of others, even as he meets our needs himself. And, and, I further believe that Jesus' prayer in John 17 that I began to read at the top of the service and will finish in the bottom of the service ought to be regarded as the Lord's Prayer. Again, if we have to call it anything, it's Jesus' prayer to his Father shortly before he goes to the cross to offer himself up for the sins of the whole world. So this morning, I'd like to begin a three-Sunday look at what I'm preferring to call the disciples' prayer. And it begins in verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, with a general teaching from Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. This is not the narrator. In fact, there's no narration here. This is all Jesus. And he includes us here today in his teaching about prayer. How should we pray? Well, here we can get a lot of help in that regard. And I'm calling it keeping our praying real. I'm actually keeping calling it keeping it real, but the it is our praying, keeping it real or keeping our praying real. In other words, keeping our praying real will mean doing our best to keep our praying regular, relational, as opposed to religious, honest, biblical, Christian, and properly oriented. And by properly oriented, I mean to and toward God in Christ Jesus, his word, his will, his ways, and in and by his spirit. We ask him to help us to pray because as we have learned in Romans chapter eight, we don't know how to pray so the Holy Spirit utters groans too deep for words. When we do not know how to pray, he prays for us. Well, our central truth of the miniseries, as you saw there in your listening guide and you have, or in your bulletin, you have it there in the upper left corner on the inside there, biblical Christian prayer. We started this last week, and this will be it for the whole um, four or five Sundays on prayer. Biblical Christian prayer is an ongoing, not, it's not just once or intermittent, it's an ongoing, deliberate, we mean to do it, and it's personal. It is from us to God. And it is our expression of trust now, no no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in now, we are trusting him no matter what in this expression to him that's ongoing, that's deliberate, that's personal. We're trusting him now and we're trusting him for the future or we're hoping for the future that he intends. We are looking forward in hope no matter what happens. Knowing that we would like to keep on living, for example, but... We have hope beyond this life, both for ourselves and also for those that we might leave behind. So we have trust now and future hope in the one true and living God through a saving, sustaining, and submitted faith in Jesus Christ, 
our forever Savior and Sovereign. We normally say, and Lord. That's good. But in the context of these days and sovereignty of England passing from one to another, it may be as good to remember who our true Sovereign is, and he is Jesus the Lord. And then for today, our central truth for today, if, if you don't remember anything else, if, if you don't write down anything else, this would be it, and you've got it there in your bulletin, so you don't even have to write it. Biblical Christian prayer is also, it's like a subset of what we just looked at, an honest, sincere, and hopeful expression of deep need for ourselves, and sacrificial intercession, we are praying for, that's what intercession means, it means praying for someone else, and sacrificial intercession for others before God in Christ Jesus, our forever sovereign Savior and sovereign. Now, one of our major understandings from last Sunday was that the God to whom we pray is the creator of all there is. On the earth, in our solar system, all the stars and galaxies, in the deepest depths of space, such as the new James Webb Space Telescope is revealing these days, this is what is called the deep field image, which is the deepest, longest, oldest picture that has ever been taken or seen. And the point is that the God of the universe can do anything in his universe that he wants and wills to do. And this belief should motivate and energize our prayers, knowing that the God who hears our prayers is also the God who created us and everything that exists, even the furthest point of light that we still can't see because we can't yet image it in that picture. And this morning we'll look at what Jesus said about the motivations and the practice of our praying by which we can be confident that God in Christ Jesus will hear us and respond to us according to his good, righteous, and perfect word, will, ways, revealed by his spirit. So let's look at it beginning with chapter 6, Matthew's Gospel, verses 1 and 2. As we look at these verses, I want us to think about this truth. Living out the biblical Christian life in the world and at church, disciples of Jesus must be mindful of practicing our righteousness before other people. We must be mindful of practicing our righteousness, this, these are Jesus' words, before other people. Without any doubt, this is one of the most challenging aspects of ministry leadership, especially when it comes to leading in worship or prayer or the ministry of the word. By the very nature of leadership, we practice our righteousness before others, largely anyway. Another way of putting that is we practice our righteousness largely before you. All leadership, especially Christian leadership, must deal with this aspect of the biblical Christian life. That is, if we're serious about being open, honest, and keeping it real, we all, but especially leaders, must deal with the choice of being transparent, that is to appear as we are or not, to be real or not, to enter into worship with you 
or to fade into performance mode and just get through it. It's shockingly easy and literally natural to fall or to fade into a performance mode without others easily noticing. But over time, if we do not correct it, if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse and renew us, a deadly hollowing out of our souls can happen. In fact, I can say this will happen to most, if not all of us, at some point. So all of us need to beware, as Jesus put it here in verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel. How does he put it? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward for your Father who is in heaven. So we, so we, we must ask the question continually, why are we doing what we are doing? What are our expectations as we do what we do? If we're doing the good, right, and true thing and nobody notices, was it wrong for us to do the good, right, and true thing? Or will we stop doing the good, right, and true thing? Jesus says, beware. Your father who's in secret sees. We'll get to that in a minute. And if we're we're doing something to be something, we need to be very careful. Say it again. If we're doing something to be something or to look like something or to appear to be something, Caution. Living out the biblical Christian life in the world and at church, disciples of Jesus Christ must be mindful of practicing our righteousness before other people. Thus, verse 2, I should finish verse 1. For then, if we are doing our righteousness, so-called righteousness, and we'll talk about what he means by practicing our righteousness in just a minute, but if we're doing it before people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The primary reason for that is that we have our reward. If we're doing something to be seen by others, As doing something, we have our reward. That's what we sought, and that's what we get. This is his point. But if we are serving before the Lord for proper motivations, without self-ambition, but we are seeking to glorify him, to exalt Jesus Christ, to, to honor God in our lives, and to be led of the Holy Spirit, then our reward, whether anybody ever notices or not, we know is coming from the Lord. And oh, by the way, we're probably not in that regard looking for the reward anyway. We're probably doing something because it's a good, right, and true thing. Thus, verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
So living out the biblical Christian life in the world and church, disciples of Jesus must be mindful of practicing our righteousness before other people. There's a second thing that we can take from this text. Living out the biblical Christian life in the world and at church, disciples of Jesus must be mindful of our own personal and internal, that is, where nobody else can see us but but us and God, our personal and eternal motivations, our ambitions, and our expectations. Personal and internal motivations, ambitions, and expectations can be key to whether we represent God in Christ Jesus in our place and time, or we misrepresent him. And when I say misrepresent him, I mean represent ourselves. And Jesus is giving us very, very helpful instruction here. And yes, it's from the Spirit, and yes, he applies it to our hearts and our minds and our practice by the Spirit. But we need to, we need to hear We need to process. This is one of the very most basic reasons that church conflict is anathema to Jesus Christ and his spirit, which is why it also ought to be anathema to us as Jesus' disciples. You heard earlier that in Jesus' prayer to his Father, recorded for us in John 17, Jesus made clear that our unity with him and with each other ought to mirror the unity of the Godhead that the effective improbability of our being divided against each other might approximate that of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being divided against each other, which is zero. So why do we do what we do? As individuals, as families, as congregants, and as leaders, as a local expression of Jesus' church, are we in this for him? For others, for each other, or are we basically in this for ourselves? These are very healthy, very helpful, and necessary questions to ask of ourselves and each other. Why are we doing what we are doing? Well, let's look at that text, verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So living out the biblical Christian life in the world and at church, disciples of Jesus must be mindful of our own personal and internal motivations, ambitions, and expectations. There's a third thing, and we're almost done. Jesus singles out prayer as a work of righteousness. Did you notice that? He he lists two here, giving to the needy in in verse 2, and then prayer from verses five all the way to verse 15. And he lists these two things, he calls these two things works or a work of righteousness. And he singles out prayer as a work of righteousness that's every bit as vulnerable to these self ambitions, these 
unrealistic expectations, these false motivations. And he singles out prayer as a work of righteousness every bit as vulnerable, every bit as valuable, and every bit as vital as tangible acts of righteousness in the practice of the biblical Christian faith. Now, we need to make clear that Jesus is, is no way, in, in no way saying here that we are or anyone else is righteous because of or made righteous by doing overt works of righteousness. We do not believe that salvation is both faith and works. We don't believe it. We believe that once we're saved, works will follow. But we are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Jesus did. And our faith is in him and in nothing else. A major truth of the Christian gospel is that no one is saved by the practice of any religion, including the best forms and the best practices of a Judeo-Christian religion. Only Jesus saves us. He alone is God's grace to us, which we receive by faith. And by that faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is itself a gift of God's grace to us by his Holy Spirit, who births us again into eternal life and by which we are saved. But whatever we do as a result of being saved or as evidence that eternal life has come and we are now living differently, such as giving to the needy when before we kept it, hoarded it for ourselves, or praying for someone else when before we were only interested in our own welfare, we should do and we must do for the good of the act itself and not for attention. So if we're to get anything from it, a reward as Jesus puts it, then we ought to look to God in Christ Jesus for any reward and not to other people, whether in the church or outside it. That doesn't mean, however, that we must not take any pleasure in doing good. We should. We just keep in mind that it's God who is the ultimate giver, and he alone is good. But the particular point I want us to see here is that both prayer and giving to the needy have intrinsic material and spiritual value. They are both worth doing, if we do them rightly, which is to honor and glorify God and exalt Jesus, not ourselves. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus puts it this way, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They have sought to be seen by others. They have been seen by others. They have thus received their reward what they had sought after. But when you pray, now he's turning to his disciples, but when you pray, don't follow their example. Follow my example. Jesus is saying, not me, Jesus. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus singles out prayer as a work of righteousness here. Every bit as vulnerable, every bit as valuable, and every bit as vital as tangible acts of righteousness in the practice of the biblical Christian faith. And finally, this is the last one. As we've noted before, as recently as last week, we see here in verses 7 and 8 explicitly the very words of Jesus. I've summarized it this way. True prayer is not a practice of our religion about God. 
but a reflection of a relationship with God in Christ Jesus. One more time. True prayer is not a practice of our religion about God, but a reflection of our relationship with God in Christ Jesus. Now we'll look at this more over the next two Sundays, but the ironic aspect of this truth is what Jesus gives us here in chapter 6 of Matthew's gospel to guard against these tendencies of wanting credit or attention or a rote expression of worship, a rote expression of religion rather, in what I'm suggesting we ought to be calling the disciples' prayer in verses 9 through 15, we've largely turned into a rote religious exercise. We all know it by heart. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But in the following verses, 9 through 13, Jesus wasn't giving us a fixed prayer to pray in our worship services or even in times of great need. I'm not saying using his words here in that way is necessarily wrong. It's just not what he intended. This is a template, not a recitation. We'll talk much more about that next Sunday and the Sunday after that. But for now, let's just keep in mind that Jesus is teaching us that prayer comes from a relational place and not a religious place. We are crying out to our Father in heaven as his needy children. Verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Are we listening? Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I just want to note verse 9. We'll start here next week, but verse 9. Pray then like this. Not pray this. But pray then like this. It's a template for how we ought to come before the Father with our needs. Now just by way of reminder, our central truth has been biblical Christian prayer is an honest, sincere, and hopeful expression of deep need for ourselves and sacrificial intercession for others before God in Christ Jesus, our forever Savior and Sovereign. I want you to look at the picture behind me. People who know such things, I'm just a wannabe astrophysicist, I'm not an actual astrophysicist, say that that's peering into the past because the light is coming from a different point and getting to us. And by the time it gets to us, there's a period of time that has transpired and the period of time that they suggest has transpired is about 13.8 billion years. 13.8 billion years. Now, I'll just share with you, I'm, I'm a young Earth guy, okay? So don't lose your minds or anything like that. But whatever the distance is that is measured not by actual distance, but by light years, the distance at 186,000 miles per second that, that light travels, that's one light year. This is like hundreds of light years away. The God who set that in motion 
The God who right now governs those galaxies and that over that distance by general and special rel- relativity, as we call it, as Einstein put it. He's the God we pray to. What can't he do? What won't he do? If we just ask. Let's pray together. Lord, we hear you. You're speaking to us of your love, of your compassion, of your mercy. You're also speaking to us of your grandness, your greatness, your willingness, your sovereignty, your ability to save even us. And beyond your ability, your desire to do so. You're the God of the universe, God of wonders, as we sang last week. Forgive us, Lord, of our unbelief and help us to believe. For Betty, for Venus, for Chris, for Louise and Arlene, for Marion and Suzanne, for Q and N and E and S as they make their way to Winnipeg, for Humaira and her family, for, for Sajid. For the Ukrainian people, Lord, who are being abused, unjustly warred upon, for all those in all the places of the world who are living under dictators and oppressors and killers, for those who are under conditions that are beyond our comprehension in Pakistan, for example, with the floods. We could list many, many other situations for the hurricane that just blew through the eastern portion of Canada, sparing some and not others. Lord, we can be overwhelmed very easily and how you oversee all of this in a way that is good, right, and true is a mystery to us. But we do depend upon your wisdom and your goodness. And so we entrust all of our, under, uh, our lack of understandings to you, 
Help us to trust and to hope in you, the one true and living God who set the universe on fire. And yet it glorifies you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for us to hear the rest of the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17 as he prays for us. Picking up at verse 18, still speaking to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will, who will believe in me through their word, that's us that they, that we may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Lord, make it so in our lives, in our families, in our relationships, in your church here known as Bethesda. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.